up on today's show, yet another massive cyber attack over the weekend. A novelist joins us to tell us his UFO story. He saw a UFO last summer and he says he hasn't been the same ever since. And planning a wedding right now? Wow, demand is through the roof. What do you need to know? We'll find out. So we're dealing with yet another cyber attack, another ransomware scheme that uh, has affected literally hundreds and hundreds of organizations and businesses around the world. Uh, Again, we believe it's being done by that Revolt group, which is based out of Russia. That's what everybody seems to be saying at this point. Um, They targeted a system that's used by IT providers. That's how they were able to get into so many different organizations so quickly. Uh, And now they're, of course, as always, uh, asking for millions of dollars in ransom. If you want all of the information on your network to be restored, it's now been encrypted. And if you want it back, you're going to have to pay. That's the way that these things work. Um, now, this is just the latest one, as we talked about a minute ago, the the huge one that affected the pipeline in the southeast United States, the meatpacking industry targeted as well. It appears there's no end in sight to these kinds of attacks, and the risk seems to be getting more and more dire every time it happens. So what do we do? What can we do? We're going to chat now with Yasser Morgan, who is a professor of engineering at the University of Regina, recently put together a piece on exactly this and what we can do to fight back. Uh, Yasser, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you. So this latest attack is different from the ones that we've seen before, and it's a pretty clear indication that they're not slowing down, they're becoming more common, and they've now found new ways to make them even broader and the consequences more severe, right? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm uh, I, I'm trying to say in my article. And uh, we need to pay more attention. There will be more to come. Um, when we see this new method that they used, it's no longer targeting a specific business. So, I mean, just think about the, the, the it's now a global reach that they have. We're talking about thousands of people. Um, did anybody see this coming? Uh, obviously, they're adapting and developing and growing their quote-unquote business. Uh, yes, uh, I, I don't think anyone can see how the attack will happen, but we know for sure that there will be more attacks. So how do we fight back? Can governments do anything? I mean, we, we know that these attacks are being attributed to a group in Russia for the most part. So they're really untouchable here or in the U.S. or in a lot of other places if they're allowed to operate in Russia without being brought you know, to bear by the Russian government. Is there, is there a way that you know, the U.S. government or the Canadian government can really do anything? We, we need to look at the elements that make the attack at the end of the day successful from the point of view of the criminals. So for them, if they are able to get their money and run away safe with it, then they are successful. So we need to break down that kind of chain that stands to a great extent on cyber or, or cryptocurrency. Um, and how do we do that? I mean, how do you go about breaking that chain? Well, uh, in the case of uh, the the colonial pipeline, uh, the FBI tried to trace the money. Uh, They were able to bring back some of the money, but they are still unable to trace it to to where it's gone. So this is something we need to really work on in order to be able to know where the money is gone. Um, in terms of preventing these attacks, uh, when Joe Biden met with Vladimir Putin, he, he sort of went all mafia on him and said, boy, it, it would really be a shame if something like this were to happen to Russia. I know in the piece you talk about sort of taking a, a nuclear treaty approach to this and saying, 
in order for that to happen, all parties involved need to be at risk, right? We, you know, would that be a, an effective strategy? Maybe targeting Russia and saying, hey, if you don't get involved in policing these groups, you're just as vulnerable and we'll exploit that and make you pay. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we, in the West, we take a criminal approach to what's happening. Uh, what I'm suggesting is to understand that there is a possibility that the Russian side is doing this in order to reach a point or to make us understand there is a point of mutual uh, mutual assured destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it mad point. When we reach mad point, nations usually agree to sit down and negotiate. At this point of time, we are not at the mad point yet. So what would be, I mean, obviously we're not recommending criminal activity, but how else do you do it? I mean, how else do you get everybody to the same point? Okay, we're just as vulnerable as the people we're targeting. What's the other alternative? Uh, Well, it's very complex uh, to discuss in in few minutes on the radio. But from our side, what we need to do is basically become more vigilant and aware about security risks do the basic security hygiene that we have to do, but also government and large-size companies, large-size high-tech, have to work together uh, with academia in order to protect our nation in a better way. Can that be done? I mean, that's the question that I have, and I don't know a lot about computers, so enlighten me here. Is there a way to prevent this? I mean, we are so interconnected, especially with people working from home and everything else now. We're all on these network-based systems. Is Is it possible to make them completely secure? Or, I mean, you know hackers are working on this 24-7. Will they always find a way? Uh, Well, uh, the easy answer is to say we cannot reach a point where we are 100% completely secure. But we can make it harder and harder for criminals to take those kind of actions. And we can make it harder and harder for them to get their money. Uh, That, over time, uh, can reach a point where attacks diminish. And if you remember a few years ago, uh, well, uh, if you are old like me, I would say a decade or so ago, uh, the attacks were prominent in the area of finance. And now we have secured the financial industry sufficiently to a, to a level that makes uh, those kind of attacks not happening in the financial industry. So it can be done, and we have, we have some sort of playbook we can follow. Certainly, yes. Um, in yeah. terms of what you do now, I mean, with this latest attack that happened over the weekend where it's affecting so many different organizations and companies all around the world, you know, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars being demanded. What What is the best approach once this happens? Do we have to pay? I mean, people want to get their businesses and their organizations back up and running, so they, they feel that pressure. What is the best approach? Well, the problem with cybersecurity is once you're attacked, it's already too late to... Yeah. to, to to try to solve it. But what we are asking organizations is to maintain series and a chain of backups that's that's happening over longer period of time uh, to em- employ multiple or wide uh, range of security uh, systems. We call it multi-fencing. So if, if a criminal is able to jump over one fence, the following fence will stop him. Uh, but once you are hit and your data is gone, uh, that's basically it's too late to do something to, to, to recoup the data. Interesting. Okay. I mean, are we seeing any headway in terms of organized efforts, you know, involving 
different levels of government, some of these big multinational companies, are they recognizing this? Are they sitting down and trying to come up with a plan to protect themselves and all of us? I don't see a serious change in attitude towards security. And that's why I'm saying governments have to take the lead. The Canadian government and the American government have to take the lead and call for big size uh, high tech and academia and others to get together and try to find solutions because we can see repetitive, uh, usually the the points of attack are the weakest points in our system. And I think so. Yes. Most importantly, we're way behind on this. This should have already happened, right? I mean, who knows when the next attack? It, it could be happening as we speak. So, time is of the essence here. Yes. All I can say is this year we'll see more and more attacks. It's going to get more and more difficult. And uh, uh, this is a point if. Any CEO, CSO is listening to me right now. This is the time to act. If you wait more than this, you could be a victim. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great insight. Thanks very much, Yasser. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care for now. Yeah, you too. That is uh, Yasser Morgan, who is a professor of engineering at the University of Virginia, and uh, he's right. I mean, it's too late at this point. We're, we're, we're playing catch-up. Uh, just some of the texts that came in. Um, Ida says, um, Hi, Shay, I know exactly how to prevent ransomware. You take your businesses off the net and put them on the intranet. Back up your computers to external hard, hard drives. Use Ethernet instead of Wi-Fi. Not that difficult. I don't know, Ida. I don't know. I mean, these hackers know what they're doing, right? I mean, they... This, if you take a look at this latest one, if you if you're working with an IT provider that uses this specific software program, that's how they got in. So it's it's not even you know you're you're relying on your IT guys to do this, and that's the what they're exploiting now. So it, I mean they're they're constantly adapting, and I think if we do manage to close one hole in the system, they'll find another one. Jeff says laughing out loud like these guys won't pay. We're so reliant on computers, these guys have dug themselves a gigantic hole. Now that business is reliant on computers, it's easy for these bank robbers to hack in, and they just get more sophisticated over time. He says businesses will tell you it won't pay, but I guarantee you, under the table, they will pay. And the worst part is these guys will come back for seconds. That's the scary part, because they've got you. They've completely got you in a box where all of the data on your entire network system is now gone, unless you pay them millions of dollars to get it back. And for many companies, I mean, they're not going to sit around and wait, right? They need that data. They need that information. They will pay. And we know they have in the past. Right now, though, as you know, we like to get uh, a little weird here on the show now and then. Maybe weird isn't the best way of putting it. Um, We don't want to fight about politics and news stories all day, every day. We like to explore the interesting. For example, UFOs. We talk about those. We've shared these stories before. We're going to do it again. Uh, They've been in the news a lot lately, of course, with the Pentagon releasing their report uh, last week on what they call UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. No little green men in that report, but an admission that there are things in the sky that they simply cannot identify, and there is a lot of them. Our next guest also recently saw something in the sky that he couldn't identify. He says this sighting has changed his entire outlook on life. So... Let's get into this now with Andrew Piper, who is a novelist, author of a book called The Residence. Andrew, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Jay. So why don't we just start with the story? Um, it sounds like a pretty good one from what I've read. Just tell us about your experience in the sighting that you had. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, compared to uh, if any of your listeners read, uh, you know, accounts of people who see UFOs, mine is on the sort of the mild side. It was last um, last summer, September, uh, at our off the grid cottage, but it's about two and a half hours north of Kingston, Ontario, and um, very remote. And I was there with my friend I've had since childhood, and uh, we were having sitting by the fire. And I felt a, I mean, I can only describe it as a strangeness. You know, the, you know that feeling where, you know, just before, you know, the, before there's a crack of lightning sure. or the, you know, the, the air kind of gets dense. It had that feeling to it. And then I felt a light to my left. I mean, it, it wasn't bright. It wasn't lighting up the clearing, but I felt it. And I turned to the left and there was a, an orb over the lake. Um, it was a good deal bigger than the moon or any planet or star, but it wasn't enormous. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, sort of like Independence Day, you know, right. those ships that can't. Um, and my friend saw it. I called his, my attention, uh, his attention to it. We both saw it and we watched it drop uh, from a high elevation to just sort of over the lake and then go at a very rapid angle up to the a diagonal up, dropped again. And then disappeared at a going at a tremendous uh, uh, speed, and all of it was silent. Okay, no sound at all. No sound at all. I mean, I, after it left, I could hear the dog. I know this dog barking down at the end of the lake, and it's well over a kilometer. That was the only sound. It was a very quiet night. Um, how long did it last? Like, was it? Did this take like ten minutes, fifteen minutes, or was it very, very brief? About a minute and a half, okay. all told. We, we ran down to the dock after it uh, took off, you know, trying to... Um, a lot of people have since asked, well, why don't you take a picture of it? Where's the video? Yeah. Uh, we did have phones on us, it's true. Uh, we all do these days, don't we? But um, uh, it was only when we got down to the dock that we thought, oh, let's, let's try to get this. Because as we're watching it, and again, I think this is true for a lot of people who have experiences like this, you don't think... Where's my phone? Right, you're, yeah. you're 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 in the moment, and it because it's really deeply, deeply weird to see something that <laughs> you know has no, uh, you know, no explanation. Now, before you, this sighting, leading up to it, how would you classify yourself? Were you a skeptic? Were you a believer? Was this something you're interested in, or sort of what approach were you taking? Was this something you were hoping to see all your life, kind of a thing, or were you sort of like, ah, oh, these things don't exist? I was certainly not a believer, but um, I call myself a student of the strange. You know, I, it is certainly something I'm interested in. I write, I've made a career in writing novels, fiction, about the supernatural, you know, ghosts, the demonic, uh, the spiritual, etc. And as a consequence of that, I mean, I, I again, I don't have a horse in the race. I don't, I've never had a supernatural experience. I've never seen a ghost, nothing of the kind. Yeah. Um, but because of my work, I do a lot of appearances and, and people write to me and come to me uh, at live events and tell me their stories, you know, whether they've seen a ghost, whether they, you know, have had some encounter with the supernatural. And almost without exception, these are educated, intelligent, rational, sober people who have had this experience that they can't explain. They're often very shy about it. Um, so there's a, even I've had this enormous body of anecdotal experience yeah. through these people. Um, but again, it didn't push me into believing, and I still don't know what I believe. You know, I don't, I, it's not that I have a commitment now to like, well, now I believe in aliens. I just know what I saw. Um, but you do write that it has changed the way you sort of, well, your entire life, right? It's sort of taken you back to an earlier time and sort of changed the way you view the world and the unknown, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it, it's, 
alerted or enlivened in me that sense of, I think many of us have as children, of, of anything being possible. Yeah. That the world and the universe, you know, when you're, when you're a kid and you look up at the stars and you wonder, what's past that? You know, like, I know I understand it's infinite, but what's that even mean? And you're grasping and trying to grapple with all those big concepts. And then you grow up and you kind of push it aside. It's either too uncomfortable or you think, well, we've got that all figured out. Um, and you lose that sense of mystery the sense of possibility, um, of uncertainty. And you sort of hold on to what you think is certain, I don't know, I guess to kind of feel more secure in the world or in yourself. And so my experience, I mean, again, it wasn't profound in the sense of like, oh, I was beamed up and abducted or anything like that. But, you know, it just reintroduced me to that sense of just enormous possibility. And also how little we know. You know, it, it humbled my sense of, where humanity stands in terms of understanding, you know, the cosmic. Yeah, because we tend to see ourselves as being all-knowing, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're this advanced species and we know everything, but what we don't know far outweighs what we do know in reality. No, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it's, just a, it's, it's also a reflex in us, and it, or at least in some of us, to kind of uh, explain it, you know, explain things away. So yeah. I know that even since I published this article in the Globe and Mail on the weekend, I've had a lot of people write to me and say, oh, I know what you saw. It was fireflies. It was the International Space Station. It was ball lightning. It was a kid playing with a drone. Each of those people were certain. You know, each of them, in good faith, felt that they had it all figured out. Well, they can't all be right. Um, and I don't know what it was, but it's interesting that that human reflex that kind of explain it away is very common. I don't know where it comes from, but, yeah, I mean, I've experienced a lot of it in the last couple of days. Um, so it's changed your life. How? How are you living differently? How are you viewing things differently? What kind of effect has it had on you, you know, since it's been almost a year now, right? It's been a year, yeah. I think, well, I certainly look at the sky differently. Um, You know, not that I expect, uh, you know, whatever I saw to return, or I don't feel that I'm special or chosen in any way, but I, you know, I look up and I just don't see this, uh, you know, benign curtain of blue or black. I see something that is genuinely, um, you know, open to possibility, that, that there is some, um, you know, that, there's a, that it's a doorway as much as, a, you know, an end point. And um, what might come through that doorway, I have no idea. But it, it, I think it's genuinely humbled me. It's, it's reminded me in my own life where I've, you know, I feel professionally successful. I, I, I feel like I know what's going on in the world. I'd stay up to date. But, um wow, how little I know, how small I now feel, you know, in relation to my knowledge, and also on this planet, you know, how small it is in this literally infinite uh, space of possibility. That, that's kind of an exciting place to be, though, right? I mean, that it, it just, it's like you say, it's like being a child, and there's all these things left to discover, and all these things that are possible. That's an exciting proposition. I find it that way, and I, but I think other people respond differently. You know, it, it's scary. sort of like being a well with fear. You know, I think some people look at the night sky or look down into the depths of a lake where they can't, where the light, light doesn't reach, and instead of feeling wonder or mystery, they feel fear. And um, fear of the unknown, of course, is it leads to a lot of dangers historically, it leads to war a lot of the time and a lot of conflict. So. For some, it engenders fear, and for some, it engenders a sort of almost, you know, vertiginous wonder. Excellent. Great story. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That is Andrew Piper, who is a novelist, author of a book called 
the residents and others telling us his story. A couple of texts. I, I missed it. What did he see? What did he see? He was at a lake in Ontario, north of Kingston, um, one night sitting around the fire when he noticed a flash of light. Uh, so he followed it and it sort of, it took off in a diagonal direction really quickly. Then it came back down and then it took off straight vertical and disappeared. And it was totally silent the entire time. What was it? Who knows? He said he's had lots of people offer him explanations as to what they think it was. I think that's probably par for the course. But he's not the only one. There were 1,243 sightings of UFOs reported across Canada in 2020, which is actually a pretty big jump from the previous year, according to uh, researchers who look into this sort of thing. But they find that the sightings have actually increased over the past 30 years. And Andrew, he, he made a good point. Here's the thing. He had his phone on him, right? We are all walking around with extremely powerful and very good cameras, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if we're all seeing these things, and if it's becoming more and more common, and, you know, sightings are going up 1,200 in Canada last year, why aren't we getting some decent pictures and video of this? That's what I don't understand. We've all got cameras on us all the time now. You would think that if somebody saw this, somebody somewhere would grab a picture. And and another listener making another point. These things always happen in the bush, right? They always happen in the woods. James says, in regard to UFO sightings, after all these people reporting all these years about whatever can't be explained, why haven't the odds of a sighting, as usually described, haven't happened in a major populated area? What are the odds of that not happening? You would think that a sighting or a viewing would invoke hundreds or thousands of people to report the same event. There have been some. There was the Phoenix Lights one, if you remember that. Uh, a lot of people saw that. Um, it has happened in populated areas, but you're right. You know, it's typically out over the ocean that these Navy pilots see it. Or uh, like Andrew at some remote off-the-grid lake north of Kingston in the Ontario bush. So, yeah, I mean, maybe that's where they want to land. I don't know. It's always fascinating to me. Think about this. Millions and millions of people around the world, of course, pushed back wedding plans last year. Had to, right? And uh, into this year, as the pandemic raged on, the possibilities became more and more restrictive. Capacity limits, no gatherings of any kind in many places, travel restrictions as well, you name it. But now that we're entering this summer and a lot of those things are going away and fingers crossed, they'll stay away. Uh, Many of those delayed weddings are now back on the front burner. So what's it like planning a wedding during the first few months where it is possible. And uh, what about cost? What's going on there? Let's get some insight into what's happening. We're going to chat now with Sheldon Fingler, who is a uh, with Infinite Event Services. Sheldon, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. I'm happy to be here. I imagine, first of all, you must be in a pretty good frame of mind now that you can at least start planning events once again, right? Well, yeah, definitely we've never felt better than we do now. After 16 months of chaos and the unknown, we're so happy to be able to be back working and helping people bring joy to their lives. That's what it's all about. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this delay has just been a nightmare. So how, like, just what kind of a backlog are we looking at right now? How many people have sort of just had to pause what they were planning to do in 2020? And now that we're into 2021 and things are starting to loosen up, how much catching up is there to do out there well catching up is actually the understatement of the year you know (laughs) um 
all the people that were planning their weddings in 2020 moved them to 2021. All the people that were planning their weddings in 2021 are moving ahead with them. And then there's those people that were planning further ahead that are now rushing just to get them in now because they don't know what the future holds. So where we were from zero to a million miles yeah. an hour, it's just overnight click. They turned it on and now it's out of control. So we're just doing everything we can uh, trying to keep up. Yeah, I, I mean, just thinking about planning a wedding during normal times, it can be absolutely chaotic. We all know demand can be through the roof for certain times of the year. And, you know, people are booking months and, and years out in advance, but you're saying they're trying to do this sort of on a rush basis in some cases. That's got to make things just pure chaos for you. Oh, absolutely. We've got people that are calling to book their entire event with two weeks' notice. They're planning, they're booking tents, tables, chairs, decor, absolutely everything, and trying to throw it together because they're not sure what the next step is, or they're just sick and tired of waiting. We have so many people that were on hold for so long that they just said enough's enough, Yeah, they're going and they're moving ahead, no matter what. Um, So what's it looking like when you're trying to book a wedding right now? Are, are, Are costs astronomical because demand is so high? Is it way more expensive this year than it was in 2019? Well, I wouldn't say it's way more expensive, but definitely people have evaluated costs. You know, as a business that went uh, without a price increase for years, we had to sit back and look at our inventory and look at how we were going to recover from this. Um, Through the pandemic, there was another company that had been in business for 55 years called ABC Weddings, and their business wasn't going to survive. So we, as a company, we absorbed them, bought them, bought their inventory, are taking care of their clients because they just weren't able to go through this and see it through to the other their side so you look at all of that you know we have to raise our prices our delivery costs have had to go up we've done everything we can to keep our existing contracts and make sure that we're being as fair as we can to people but going forward it's just the new way of the world the the costs have gone up because of insurance because of fuel because of labor so that side makes it harder and at the end of the day we're just doing everything we can to help our customers because that's our number one priority are there certain things that are just unattainable or way more expensive than they were before is there a certain i mean there's so many different components that go into planning a wedding are there some areas that are just being more harshly affected than others well, we are hearing from the venues, the hotels are getting hit with the highest price increase. Hotels have been faced, in some cases, with 300% insurance increase rates or insurance rate increases. So they've been hit really hard. So they've had to uh, adjust, and that's been really hard on the customers. Yeah. So we are seeing a huge influx of tent weddings, people planning tents on uh, farms, acreages, homes. So you would think that that would be a good thing, but now we're running short of tents on pretty much every weekend. Normally, rental companies, we're all sort of friendly competition, but at the end of the day, we're all competition, so we don't do a lot to help each other out. Um, This year, all of us companies are working together trying to find out who's got inventory left for different weekends so we can send each other back and forth and keep the customers happy. And tents, that's the big one, is it? Tents are definitely the big one. Um, We buy all of our tents through a Canadian manufacturer out of Calgary. And I spoke with them at the start of the season when we first got word that things were looking up and we added more to our inventory. And because I was a loyal customer there, he managed to get me my inventory, but they are talking at about a 16-week wait for inventory, which puts us far beyond the usable area of the season. 
So if you don't have the inventory in your warehouse now, you're not going to be able to service the customers. Wow, and that's just because of the change to everybody moving everything outside because that's at least a little bit safer than having a big indoor wedding should things fall off the rails, right? Absolutely. And and there is, you know, some peace of mind that people are able to go ahead with it in some regards, no matter what. They've got their acreage, they've got their place, they don't have to worry. Even if restrictions come, they can lower their count, but they can still go ahead. Whereas if they booked it at a hotel, the hotel may have to close completely and not be able to honor the booking. Whereas going to their tent, they can do it regardless. Unreal. So I guess the thing right now is just patience, right? If you're in that position where you're trying to book, know what you can and can't do and and just try and be patient because everybody's trying to do the same thing. Well, and that's the biggest thing, you know, communicate and plan ahead. Um, We're able to work on short notice, but that's the other trend we're seeing is we're seeing some customers wait until closer to the date because they're unsure still as to the government changes. So they're waiting to book their tent or their inventory until two weeks before the wedding. But at that point, so many other people have moved ahead and booked that people that we've done quotes for three months ago are now calling to move ahead, but we don't have the inventory because they left it and they weren't able to jump on the train to move forward. Yeah, no kidding. What a time. I, I, it's, it's really and truly a good news, bad news situation. You love to be so busy and have all the demand, but at the same time, keeping up with it is just going to be a nightmare for the next little while. Well, keeping up with it, getting staff to work, getting, you know, my 70-something, I won't say their ages because they'll probably get mad at me, but my 70-something-year-old parents are coming in and helping out at work, and uh, they ran the weekend shift with us because we had no other choice. We were, everybody's out on jobs from my youngest child, uh, my 14-year-old daughter, um, all the way through to my 70-something-year-old parents are all kicking in to try and keep us going. All hands on deck. Hey, get her done. Great. Yeah. Okay, thanks so much for the insight, Sheldon. I appreciate it. And good luck getting through this summer. It's going to be busy. We're prepared for it, and we're looking for uh, more happy customers ahead. Absolutely. Okay, thank you, Sheldon. Thanks, Shay. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.